It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 201 for July 18th, 2010. Recorded July 16th. Sometimes, to acquire outstanding software functionality, you are forced to pay less than you expected. In the case of Zara Designer Pro 6, it's a lot less than you expected. Zara has developed the uncanny ability to create applications that do more than you should expect them to do, and that's demonstrated pretty clearly in version 6 of Zara Designer Pro. Actually, you need to choose between Zara Photo and Graphic Designer 6, which costs $90, and Zara Designer Pro 6, which costs $300. The Pro version adds features that designers need. For example, support for PDFX, Pantone color matching, color separations, support for multi-core processors, enhanced import and export filters, and more powerful versions of some of the photo tools. But the basic version of the application is no slouch. In the 1980s, Corel developed a minimalist interface for Corel Draw. They called it a sparse toolset because the toolbar had only a few icons on it. But most of those icons had other functions beneath. For everything that Corel borrowed from Zara, it's reasonable for Zara to borrow a flyout feature from Corel. More about that relationship in just a bit. A few weeks ago, I told you about Zara Web Designer 6, an application that is intuitive and easy to use. Zara Designer Pro 6 clearly shares many features with Web Designer, and it extends the features in ways that graphic designers will appreciate, even if they're not really graphic designers. Let's face it, in today's business climate, many of us are called on to do things that we haven't really been trained to do. There are lots of reasons why you'll like Zara Designer Pro 6. I'm going to assume that you'll be willing to buy or upgrade to the Pro version. If you don't need the Pro version's features, you'll find that Zara Photo and Graphic Designer 6 offers surprisingly complete features for the price. Combining bitmap and vector graphics. Bitmap images, which are also called raster images, are made up of pixels in a grid. Pixels, or picture elements, are dots of color that make up what you see on your screen. All of these tiny dots of color come together to form the images you see. Vector graphics are mathematical representations of geometric shapes. Vectors are sharp and scale well. Bitmaps are photorealistic. Most computer graphics applications deal with one or the other, bitmap or vector. An application that can deal with both types of images would be extraordinary, and Zara Designer Pro 6 can do exactly that. This seems to be the year in which applications save you from yourself, and Zara Designer has joined that movement. Create a new document, and if you close Zara Designer without saving the document, it'll be there when you open the program again. In testing, I found that this didn't always work exactly as expected, but I've been working with Zara's development team, and I'm sure that it will soon be working properly. As late as last Thursday, I was provided a new version of the application, and I'll be working with that in the coming week. I'll let you know how it works out. There's a TechBiter video this week. On the video, I do my best 
to make something really ugly. You'll see it in the still images on the site, and you'll see also that it's possible to make something that looks really good. To start with, I'll show you the minimal interface. The video shows you some of the flyouts, but even when you take these into account, the interface is still very small and manageable, the kind of thing that the average person can remember and learn. I started by drawing a line, increasing its width, adding an arrow, and then changing the size of the arrowhead. I changed the color of the line, then edited the line's bezier curve so that the line itself was no longer straight. All of this was quick, easy, and took just a minute or so. Then I decided to play with some text. All beginning programmers start with a program that displays, Hello, world! And that's where I started, with some plain old black text. Then I resized the text, changed its color, added a linear fill, added an outline, and finally modified it to be a three-point fill. Again, just a minute or so's worth of work. Then I used some three-dimensional modifications, and the 3D features in Zara are as amazing as I've seen anywhere. They are so easy to use. The result is not exactly the greatest design I've ever seen, but it illustrates the point. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that I can do something better with this application. I started with an Adobe Illustrator file, a white light bulb on a black background. And about five minutes later, I had created a light bulb with a convincing base, a glowing filament, and some light. It really doesn't get a lot easier than that. I did find what I consider to be kind of a needless feature, though. Apparently trying to leapfrog Adobe, Zara Designer Pro 6 offers a solution that's still in search of a problem. Adobe has content-aware scaling, and with CS5, content-aware fill. Zara offers content-aware Zoom. I've looked at Zara's example files, and I've tried this feature on my own files. The point seems to be to enlarge important parts of an image without zooming the entire image. So you keep all of the pieces, but the scale of the pieces changes? Why? The example files I've seen really aren't improved a lot by content-aware zoom. The images are different, that's true, but I don't consider them better. I can't think of a situation in which I would really want to use that feature. But what the heck? It comes with the program. You don't have to use it. There's a lot of other good stuff in there. Zara, by the way, is a British company that frightened the Corel Corporation so much that Corel signed a marketing deal with Zara acquired some of the company's technologies, and then ended the deal. Zara Studio was licensed by Corel and distributed as Corel Zara. Zara has continued to develop products with extraordinary features, while Corel has largely gone stagnant. Zara was acquired in 2007 by a German company, Magix AG. Zara is headquartered in Gaddiston Place, which is north of London. The building was designed by James Wyatt and built between 1768 and 1773. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I'll give you a link that lets you take a look at their building. I'm sure the building has certain technological challenges, but wow, wouldn't it be nice to work in a place that looks like that? The bottom line for Zara Designer Pro 6? Four cats. Zara offers more than you'll expect given the price. 
If you're skeptical, try downloading the application and giving it a trial run. You will be surprised how much power this small program packs. For more information, check the Zara website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. This is the second week in which I have offered a video with the program. Not everything lends itself to verbal, consisting of words, or oral, spoken descriptions. That's why I've been looking at what TechBiter Worldwide can do with video. And don't expect the program to become a TV show or even a video cast. As I may have mentioned a time or two, I have a face that is perfect for radio. But sometimes I can create a better explanation if I use a bit of video. Video will, of course, always be embedded on the website and will not be included in the podcast, because it can't be. And it won't be included in the weekly email, because it shouldn't be. After examining the various methods of providing video, I've settled, initially at least, on using Vimeo, because the basic service is free and because it allows me to create high-definition video. The HD part is important because it's impossible to see fine detail when the streaming video image is tiny or fuzzy or both. On playback, you'll have the option of watching an HD or standard video. Choose HD if your internet connection will support it. And while you're at it, click the full screen option so that you can see the maximum amount of detail. If you don't click the full screen button, you'll see the video half size at best. I've placed an example image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It shows the playback as you'll see it on the Vimeo site if you follow the link and actually go to the site. And if you do that, you'll get even better quality video. When it's a streaming video, such as that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, the options that appear on the right side of the image I show you are invisible until you hover the mouse over the video. So that's a difference from the Vimeo website. Vimeo presents high-definition video in the 720p format, exactly the same resolution used by broadcast networks and many of the cable and satellite providers. That's 1280 by 720 pixels. The initial video is captured by a service called Screencast-O-Matic. I then download it, edit in Adobe Premiere CS5, and finally upload it to Vimeo. This is particularly good news if you are interested in video editing on your computer, because I will finally be able to review the Adobe video applications. Over the next several months, you can expect to see some programs on video capture and video editing, a topic I have largely avoided so far because it's complicated, expensive, and beyond the capabilities of most home computers. Or at least it was. All of that has changed. The tools needed to capture high-quality video are now within reach for a lot of people. The tools, while still complicated, can be mastered by anyone who's willing to spend some time learning how to use them. Lynda.com has some outstanding titles that cover basic video production and more advanced production, too, for all that goes. As more people upgrade to Macs and PCs with 64-bit processors, lots of memory, and large, fast hard drives... The available hardware is more than adequate. So it's time for TechBiter Worldwide to begin taking a look at video. I do have the advantage, maybe this is an advantage, of having had some classes in television production nearly 45 years ago, and having had a career path that occasionally required me to write and produce video presentations. But each of those video presentations involved me sitting in the control room telling the professionals what outcome I wanted at watching as they did the work. 
This time around, I get to do the work. Oh, and don't expect perfection initially, or maybe ever. I'm very much in the learning mode right now. On Independence Day, I mentioned that I really liked having a large 23.6-inch 1920 by 1080 pixel monitor because I can put so much on it. What's even better is two monitors. At the office, I've added a second monitor, and the difference was astonishing. I've never met anybody who, after trying a second monitor, would ever want to go back to a single monitor. And now, I know why. Within just a few minutes of having that second monitor on my desk, I needed to do something that would have required making two applications uncomfortably small, or flipping forth and back between two applications, always needing to see what the bottom application is showing so I could enter information on the top program. Well, with the second monitor, I could read what I needed to see on the right and type on the left, or the other way around. Copy and paste? Equally easy. Copy, move, click, paste. I often need to have two browsers open so it's easy to run Chrome on the left, Firefox on the right. If you find yourself switching constantly between applications, you are a candidate for a second monitor. These days, it isn't really an expensive proposition either. A video card that supports two monitors and a second monitor would set you back less than $200 in most cases. Now, this assumes you already have one monitor and you plan to keep that monitor. I took a photo of the setup, and you'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Secure CRT, an IM contact list, and OneNote open on the left screen. Chrome is also there, but in the back. On the right, it's Firefox, Excel, a clock, and the Windows Mobile Synchronizer. Now, what I really want at home is two 23.6-inch 1920x1080 monitors. That would be fun. So how broad is your band, anyway? Broadband in the U.S. is faster than it used to be. It's in more locations than it used to be. The federal government's Broadband Technology Opportunity Program and the Broadband Initiatives Program are part of a stimulus program, and they have as their goal expanding and speeding the Internet. Well, it's about time. Despite the fact that we have seen incremental increases in speed and coverage, it's still too slow and too limited geographically. Nearly 30% of the populations of Germany, Canada, and France have access to broadband. In the U.S., it's about 23%. Netherlands and Belgium each have about 35%. The U.S. is also well behind Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and Monaco. By the way, please note, the statistics here are from various sources. They may not always be compatible, but they'll give you kind of a general snapshot of what's going on around the world. Until we have fast and ubiquitous Internet access, futuristic uses such as telemedicine, off-site backup, video conferencing, and entertainment video streaming will be out of reach for a lot of people. The National Broadband Plan's goal within the next decade is to expand fast 100 megabits per second download speeds to 100 million consumers. Clearly, this faster service will be limited to areas with relatively dense populations. Cities, in other words. But this will also bring more modest speeds, perhaps in the 5 to 10 megabits per second range, to areas that are currently limited to modems. 
Rumors were thick this week that Apple would recall its latest model iPhone because of problems with dropped calls. Earlier, Steve Jobs essentially blew off complainers by saying they were holding the phone wrong. Jobs was a bit friendlier on Friday and admitted that problems do exist, but blamed the lack of sufficient AT&T cell phone towers, particularly in California, for some of the difficulties. So, Apple will hand out free iPhone cases that are supposed to alleviate the problem. The cases cost $29 retail. That means that Apple probably pays a Chinese manufacturer about $2.75 a piece for them, but at least it's a start. And if you already bought one of the cases on your own, you can file for a refund from Apple. Jobs says the problem has been blown all out of proportion. Those who are still unhappy with the phone can return it for a full refund through the end of September. The iPhone is a handy device. I don't own one, but I know people who do. It does a lot, and each new version does more. When a company pushes the technological envelope, as Apple frequently does, it's bound to reveal problems with the technology. Now, if that sounds like I'm an Apple apologist, so be it. Sometimes Apple, or Microsoft for that reason, is characterized unfairly. And this seems to be one of those cases so to speak. Quick reminder, technologycorner.com and 610tech.net are going away. In the last year, the Technology Corner was on 610WTVN was 2006. Since then, it's been TechBiter worldwide. This month, the old domain names, technologycorner.com and 610tech.net, become history. If you're still using either one of them, please update your links to www.techbiter.com. The two old domains will probably be picked up as soon as they're available by somebody who may hope to sell them back to me. <laughs> Good luck on that. Whatever happens to them, they won't be pointing to techbiter.com as they have since 2006. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.